The great philosopher Kierkegaard said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Looking back only results in learning for people who have that time to think. And many of us are so busy with day-to-day -day demands that we rarely have time to reflect. And that's why we started What I Wish I Knew. It's for those moments when you realize that just a bit of insight might have come in handy if you had it in advance. I'm Mike Irwin. And I'm Simon Dore. So we talk with people from all walks of life, from startup entrepreneurs to Fortune 500 CEOs, professional athletes to weekend warriors, from artists and to designers, to even engineers who became designers. From those who dream to those who dream and actually do. They all have three things in common. None are perfect. All are humble and each have truly incredible learnings. In what I wish I knew, they share these lessons with you. Join us at whatiwishanewshow.com. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And please share and subscribe to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw. So welcome to What I Wish I Knew with um, Mike Irwin and Simon Daw. We're excited to have Jeff Campbell with us here today. Jeff is a former CEO of Burger King and chairman of the Pillsbury Restaurant Group. So he's led worldwide um, restaurant organizations. He's also been, you know, uh, you know, an incredibly high level world-class marketer when he was senior vice president of brand development for Pepsi Cola. He's been CEO of Johnny Rockets, another one of my favorite uh, restaurant chains as well. Um, and aside from that, he served in the U.S. Army as in, in the 82nd Airborne Division. So he's he's a, a veteran as well. He's co-founder of Wisdom Capture, which is a leadership um, development platform that we'd love to hear a bit more about. He's an executive in residence at San Diego State University, where he mentors um, college students in the hospitality and tourism industry. He's a writer. He's a speaker and probably... For me, the, the most impressive part of it is the time that Jeff devotes to, uh, to helping young entrepreneurs achieve their dreams through organizations like Chairman's Roundtable and just through his, his own work as a, as a speaker. So, Jeff, welcome to What I Wish I Knew. <laughs> Thanks. I love the title. <laughs> Thank you. So, Jeff, give us a quick rundown on what got you here. Well, I spent about... Um, 35 years in corporate life. I was just adding those, those numbers up. Um, and then about 15 years ago, uh, I, I went into <laughs> something loosely termed semi-retirement where I seem to be working harder than I ever did in corporate life, uh, but with less travel, as it turns out. So, um, You've, you know, as you mentioned, the, the highlight of those first 35 years was being CEO of Burger King, uh, ran two other restaurant companies, spent my time at Pepsi. I actually started out at an ad agency on Madison Avenue in 1969, uh, where I met my wife of about to be 50 years. So I was a full, full service agency. <laughs> so you really were a madman. Uh, I was, you know, I watched that, uh, some episodes from that show. And I try to tell people, yeah, it was pretty much like that. <laughs> in, the, in the late 60s, people would go to lunch on weekdays, you know, your work day and drink. And so you learn pretty quickly as a junior uh, account executive, 
who it was good to present to in the afternoon and who you wanted to avoid, <laughs> who you wanted to make sure you didn't run into in the afternoon. It was crazy. We had a client who uh, would fly into town on Fridays. And I had a boss who was a pretty senior guy in the agency who was great to me, you know, really took me under his wing. But the routine would be to take the client out to Charlie Brown's for a Friday lunch. He would have two or three martinis and then would bring him back to the office and present storyboards for new commercials to him. And uh, it was hilarious watching my boss work because he'd go through them and, and the client would get up and wobble over to him and go, Danny, you've done it again. <laughs> you know, we should have gone to jail for that stuff. Um, but it was, a, it was a fun way to break into the marketing business, which was the first part of my career. So how so you you go into the ad agency ad agency business? Is that something that you saw yourself doing as you're going through school and stuff? Only uh, when I got into my MBA program, <clears throat> I would I would commute into I went to Columbia, and uh, I lived at home for the second of two years there and commuted into New York City with my father, and we would walk together to about 59th Street. He'd peel off to his his company, Eastern Airlines, and I'd jump on the subway and go up to campus at Columbia. So I spent a lot of, a lot of good time, quality time <clears throat> with my father at that age. And he would say, you know, marketing's a good career. You know, he was a high school dropout. So he had, you know, made his way into an executive role, uh, very, very much a self-educated guy. Uh, and he'd say, you know, marketing, that'd be a good field for you. And then, you know, I started thinking, okay, that makes sense. Um, and maybe a great way to start in marketing would be to work at an ad agency for a couple of years first. So I'd work two years at the agency and then moved to advertising manager at Burger King in 1971. So, and I remember my first meeting as the client, <laughs> it was it was great because one of the guys from our ad agency said, well, how do you justify that? And I said, I don't have to justify it. I'm the client. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that guy who was the creative director on Burger King then for uh, BBDNO became a lifelong, he and his wife became lifelong friends with my wife and I. They, they both passed away about a decade ago, but wonderful people, Dick, wow. Dick and Muriel Mercer. Wow. Yeah. So when you, so you go to Burger King and then is that an industry that, um, that you'd thought about before or was that the kind of thing where you're running the, their business anyway in the ad side and you jump to the client side? I, my father became terminally ill. Um, Eastern Airlines had moved their headquarters to Miami. So he, I was happy at the agency. Ellen and I had just gotten married and about five months later, my father had a relapse of colon cancer. Oh. So to make a long story short, I came down to visit him and his, I went out for a beer with his best friend from Eastern. And he said to me, Hey, you know, Burger King's looking for an advertising manager. It'd be really cool if you got a job like that and then you could be close to your dad. And so I went over to Burger King, uh, I can't remember. He probably put that together. And I was there for a couple hours and they asked me to come back the next day. So I knew they were going to offer me the job. And so I went home and told Ellen, I said, Hey, I think they're going to offer me a job and I'm inclined to take it. So I went back for my second interview. She went apartment hunting. Um, 
And so that's how I, I wound up going to Burger King. And my father died about three months later, and I got to be with him that night uh, through his, his actual passing in the wee hours. So I always said it was worth it to make that move career-wise if I had turned around at the end of three months after my father's death and gone back to the agency. So it was a very, very key moment in my life. Wow. Wow. Um, and so you stayed with Burger King then obviously through the years. And, and yeah. what is it about, what is it about that experience or about that era that you felt like, you know, fit you well? Cause you go from ad, you know, manager ultimately to leading the whole company. How did that, how did that happen? Yeah. I've always talked, <laughs> This is, this is um, I'm going to sound like I'm kidding. I'm not. Uh, I always tell people I was the one-eyed man in the land of the blind. Um, I had a, an amazing work ethic. Um, and the company was growing like a weed. When I got there, there were 600 restaurants. And when I left, there were six or 7,000. Uh, and so it was, it was growing rapidly. And there was an opportunity for, to get promoted Constant, there was a constant opportunity for growth and responsibility if you produced. And so, you know, I was full of energy and uh, I, you know, I just kept getting promoted. And after about six years, I had made it to kind of the number two job in marketing. And a new CEO came in who had been the number two guy at McDonald's, a guy named Don Smith, who was a force of nature. This guy was 36 years old. And I was, I'm, I'm probably, let's see, I was 32. And I was going, how can this guy, he's only four years older than me, you know? And, and when I met him, I realized, so oh, I see, I see how he did it. This is one of the smartest guys I've ever met. And, and just hard nosed, you know, gruff, but um, really an interesting model of a leader. And uh, he showed up. I was, I was hoping to be promoted to vice president. And his first day in the office, nobody saw him. All I saw was this big Lincoln out in the parking lot, right? And yeah, everybody, rumors, oh, he's here, he's here. But nobody saw him. And it's like 5.30 in the evening, and I get a call sitting in my office. Phone rings, and I pick it up, and I say, is this Jeff? And I go, yeah, is this Don Smith? I want you to come up and say hello. So I immediately went into the office of the guy next to me, who was a real wise guy. And I said, did you just, you just called me pretending to be Don Smith, didn't you? <laughs> he goes, no, 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 I didn't. You know, so he said, I swear. So I went up to the seventh floor, which was the executive floor. And Smith's secretary had, used, had, had worked in our department. So I said, hey, did he really call me? And she said, yeah, yeah, he's waiting for you. Go ahead in. So I walk in and he says, hey, sit down. You know, very gruff. And he goes, uh, hey, I've been out riding with the operations people all day, and they tell me that you're the, the one guy in marketing who's really got a great nose for the business. So I, I hear you're up for VP, so you're a vice president. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I, went, I went, excuse me? <laughs> so anyway, I didn't say anything uh, to anybody. And the next day I was sitting in a meeting with my boss and a couple other people and Smith comes walking in and he goes, Hey, did you tell these guys you're a vice president? And I said, no, <laughs> he said, well, you're a vice president. God damn it. So, you know, interesting, 
interesting days at Burger King. So that what happened after that was he gave me the opportunity to move from marketing to operations, which I, I knew if I ever wanted to run the place. And by now I'm starting to have that aspiration. And so he created a path, not only for me, but for others, an 18 month training program, no guarantees. You know, you give up your title, go to work in a restaurant. You know, if you, you hit all your marks, 18 months later, you get a region. If not, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. So I went home to Helen and said, hey, here's this deal. I give up the title. I'll go to work in a restaurant. <laughs> and we had just had our son, who's now 44, and just built a, a nice house. And uh, she said, why do you want to do this? And I said, I think I could be president of the company someday. And, and my beloved wife said, okay, let's go. Let's do it. So that's that's how we made that shift. And then and I got, I wound up getting the New York region, which was what I had wanted. It was kind of the baddest region because the franchisees were killers, you know, and every, every, uh, we would have these ADI meetings where I'd have like a hundred franchisees in the room, half of whom wanted to kill me. <laughs> it, was, it was great. I always said it was great training to be mayor of New York, <laughs> how to control a crowd. Right. No so it was, it was a, it was a wonderful growth experience. So let me ask you this, Jeff, and, Tell me if I'm off base, but at some point in this journey, do you ever kind of start believing your story? Like, you know, I really am all that. I really am. Oh, absolutely. Answer. Absolutely. Does that happen? And that, was, that was the key to my first downfall because I started believing, smoking my own exhaust, I think is the term for it, right? So I'm, I'm getting used to being boy wonder, right? And, you know, just everything was going great. And so you do, you know, I, I hate to admit it about myself, but you do start going, hey, I'm pretty good. And uh, I wound up after 17 years running into a buzzsaw because as I kept moving up, I was moving up a little too fast for the franchisee community's comfort. So I became president of Burger King USA and we did this killer thing called the Battle of the Burgers, which really just exploded the business in a good way. But then I moved up to worldwide operations to take over international. And when Pillsbury, which was our parent company, was about to promote me to run worldwide, a group of franchisees went to see them in Minneapolis and said, hey, don't do this. You know, this guy's, he's doing great, but he's just getting started. You know, don't take him away from us. But, you know, I was very ambitious to get that move. And so they proceeded to make me head of worldwide. And then Norman Brinker, uh, who was acting chairman of Burger King, bought Chili's and asked to meet with me one morning. And I thought, you know, good shot of getting fired here because we were knocking, knocking heads. And I, I went in and he said, hey, I bought Chili's. I got to quit the board. So you're the new chairman and CEO of Burger King. Wow. And this is like two years from the region, right? So I'm like, this is like the third job in 24 months. So, whoa. And then, what is that, 83, four years later, I get promoted to run the whole Pillsbury restaurant group. And now the franchisees are really unhappy with me because they, uh, 
I had I made a mistake with my initial successor and had to make a change after a while. And uh, they felt I they they've literally said this to my face, you you abandon us. And um, I wound up getting sacked in 1988, which was a huge trauma for me. Of course. So we're talking about, you know, formative experiences. And that was just oh, 17 years, boy wonder, you know, legend in my own mind. And, uh, you know, a lot of great results, but I didn't take care of my stakeholders. So, Jeff, you say that now, and, you know, I, I got to believe that that had to be, like you said, I mean, a, a shock. I mean, here you were, you go from, you know, entry level to running the entire business worldwide in a short amount of time. Um, did it, when the end came, did you see it coming at all, or did yeah. you, and, and when it did happen, did you feel any sense of bitterness, or did you maybe recognize what you could have done differently? Uh, it, it's a great, it's a great mini story, I guess. I saw it coming for the last year because it was clear it was things were, you know, suddenly I was no longer Boy Wonder, right? Uh, and it was clear to me that things were going in the wrong direction for a year before it happened. And then the guy that was chairman of Pillsbury was a guy named Bill Spore. He was a really tough guy, but I, I loved working for him. And he asked me to have lunch one day, and I knew that this, this is it. And uh, I literally got dressed that morning. I walked into my son's room, and, and I said, hey, what do you want to do this summer? And he goes, why? And I said, because I'm probably going to get fired today, so I'm going to have some time off. What do you want to do this summer? <laughs> he goes, really? Really? That's cool. <laughs> so we could do stuff. Um, and I went in and went to lunch with Bill, and, you know, it became clear about three sentences into the conversation that that's what's going on. So he went through his spiel, and I said, hey, Bill, uh, uh, this is the first time I've ever gotten fired. I've, I've fired others, but... Um, three things that I take away from this. One is I saw it coming. Second, uh, it's a relief. Third, I'm glad it's you that did it. So he said, wow, yeah, wow. <laughs> wow. We should work together again sometime, you know, but it was, uh, it was, um, psychologically it really was a blow you know i put a good face on it you know how they say don't ever let them see you sweat mm -hmm. there was a meeting before i got fired where the franchisees all came to miami to meet with a group of the pillsbury senior executives and i knew the agenda and i wasn't invited to the meeting i knew the agenda was to get me and so i uh, I walked into that room before the meeting started and I went around to every franchisee and shook his hand, made him look me in the eye. Wow. So I figured you guys are going to kill me. You're going to look me in the eye. You're going to shake my hand. Yeah, right on. So yeah, that was my, don't let them see you sweat. But you know, privately I was, I was devastated. Wow. So how, I mean, how do you recover from something like that? I mean, when, when you're <laughs> at the top 
And, and maybe that's a bad question, but do, when you reach the It's a great question. It's a great question. I, you know who asked me that question? Uh, I was at a guy's gathering uh, in, uh, in uh, Deer Valley, Utah, with Dan Lundgren, who had run for governor. I remember. Killed by Gray Davis. Do you remember him? Yeah. And so Dan and I are sitting there and we're telling our stories. And Dan looked at me and asked me that question. How did it come back from that? Did it, did it sap your self-confidence? And I said, you bet your ass it did. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, how do you come back from that? And I said, a piece at a time. It's a piece at a time, a step at a time. You build yourself back. And it, and it will. You'll, you'll get there. But, you know, it's not an overnight deal. Wow. So that was, that was an interesting, interesting moment with him because he had been through, you know, an embarrassing defeat and a very public one. Yeah. So, so tell me then, is that when you found yourself climbing Kilimanjaro and deciding what you're going to do with the rest of your life? Or is that? Uh, that was just before that, but the Kilimanjaro uh, thing, and you may have read this piece someplace on one of my websites, but one of the things we did when we were ascending Kilimanjaro was at 12,000 feet, everybody spent a day on their own. Go find a place on the mountain, bring your journal, and spend a day with yourself. And uh, I can remember sitting at an interesting little corner of the mountain, looking out and watching the clouds rise up off the, the valley floor uh, and working in my journal. And one of the the questions I asked myself in the journal was thinking about Ellen and I, what is the one thing we don't have that we really want? And the answer was time. Hmm. And so I basically envisioned, it didn't dawn on me until a couple of years ago, I basically envisioned the life I'm leading now hmm. as, as what my ideal state would be. So I'd be active and I'd be, you know, maybe doing boards and writing and speaking and teaching and doing all that stuff, but I'd have control of my own time, which I felt I very much didn't in, in corporate life. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so ultimately it happened. And a couple of years ago, after a long gap, I was talking to the guy who led that expedition to Tanzania and ultimately Kilimanjaro, a guy named Dick Leiter, who's, who's written a couple of great books um, and I said, Hey, you know what? It just dawned on me this year. I'm living the life I wrote about in the journal that day at 12,000 feet. So, but yeah, that was, uh, that was a formative experience for me. And I subsequently would tell people about my Burger King experience that I was smart enough to do that job. I just wasn't wise enough to do it. Wow. Wow. And just Thinking about that, you're smart enough to do, do the job to do the job, but not wise enough to do the job. Is that? Do you feel like that was a reflection of of your relative your youth, or is it was it a reflection of maybe something else? Well, youth, you know, youth would be a convenient uh, excuse. I look back on it now. Uh, and I, I try to get inside my head at that time. And uh, there's a couple of things I was very proud of about that as I look back in retrospect, because I, I had balls. <laughs> I had, you know, 
brass balls. Uh, I, I think back to stuff that I did and go, well, how the hell did you ever get the guts to do that? Um, so in retrospect, that's kind of amusing. But I also think about things I did that were just stupid, you know, just stupid. If you had any, if you were self-aware, you would never have done that. Right? Um, <laughs> if you were more thoughtful, you never would have done that. Um, you know, if you listen more, you never would have done that. So one of the things that's happened to me over the course of my life is, is you know, I've changed, I think, fairly dramatically as a person in terms of the way I approach other people. Uh, and I think, given my persona, I needed that two by four upside the head in 1988 to get my attention. So as painful as it was at the age of 76, when I look back on it, it's probably one of the best things that ever happened to me in the, in, in the terms of a full life. Yeah. Career wise, it sucked. It's terrible. But in terms of my life um, and trying to, you know, be who I'm supposed to be, it was, it was hugely valuable. Usually valuable. So the further it gets in the rear view mirror, you know, the more valuable it gets and, and the sting is gone, you know? Yeah. So um, you, you reflect on it. So I'm one of the things I'm doing now is uh, a lot of reflecting as I begin to get closer to 80 than 70. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been really blessed with, with a great and very interesting life. I haven't gotten cheated, right? I've had the ups and I've had the downs and uh, it's been, it's just been a great ride. So, but it's also a period where you reflect on all this stuff. And that's, I find that very rewarding in itself. Wow. That's, that's an incredible story. You had this meteoric rise to the top of a major global organization, and then it's taken away. And you're able to, you know, you're, you, you say that in retrospect, it was probably, probably a blessing. So I want to ask you this question. If, if you and I had met, in like the early 80s do you think i would have liked you <laughs> that's a that's a great question uh the odds are probably 80 20 that you would okay so you know i was i was reasonably charming guy with a great sense of humor so um you know i still talk to people from those days uh but 20 percent you might have said, what a jerk. <laughs> so <laughs> this guy's too full. You know, I, I, I don't like myself then. Oh. But, right? think, you know, you strike me as such a, I mean, one, one of the things that I've, I've really admired about you since we met is, you know, here's this person who's had, by any stretch, massive success at an incredibly young age. And most people, many people at least, come away from an experience like that believing that they are all that and that in their ego, they become insufferable for the rest of their lives. And, and that's, maybe, <laughs> you know, but you're not that way. And yet you did that, but you're not that way. Well, cause I'm very conscious of my shortcomings, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and an event like that, you know, it, it, if you haven't been adequately introspective, you, you should become that way. Right. Cause you've got to look at it. Wait a minute. You know, 
how did I mess this up? Cause I'm really, I'm a smart guy. And I, you know, I believe that, right. I'm a smart guy, but I messed it up. And so now you're getting into your inner self in, in what I think is a really good way. But a, a quick side story about believing the, you know, your own, your own press clippings. While I was still running Burger King, Ellen and I went to a charity event at the New York Public Library with Roger Enrico uh, from Pepsi and, and, and his wife, Rosemary, and Bert Manning, who was the chairman of J. Walter Thompson and, and his uh, wife at the time. And we're in a, a big stretch limo. So the girls are having their own conversation. And I had just read something about this. So I look at Roger and, and Bert and I said, hey, do you guys ever hear of the imposter syndrome? <laughs> and the two of them looked at me like, how does he know? <laughs> it was one of the funniest sight gags I've ever seen. They were like, huh? Um, so we, we, we talked about it for a while and cracked up. But, you know, uh, and Bert Manning, about five years ago, I called him after a long time. We used to see a lot of each other. And when he picked up the phone, and he says, this is Bert Manning. And I said, I used to be Jeff Campbell. <laughs> and he says, oh, I guess I used to be Bert Manning. <laughs> so anyway. So uh, what's your advice these days then? You, you know, you, you deal with now, um, you know, you're teaching at the university, you're mentoring entrepreneurs at all stages, you're speaking, you're writing. What do you tell people now? Let's just pick someone who, you know, a 30 year old who's, they think they've kind of found their either career path or business that they want to start or whatever is, are there any kind of those intangibles that you would say, Hey, look, you know, if I were you at that age, you know, here's what I, here's what I would want you to know. Yeah. I, well, I tell my story or parts of it. So there's a fabulous young guy here in town. I don't know if you know, Matt Clifford, you know him? No. Uh, super charismatic young man who was my student about 10 years ago. And he's, Matt's about 32 now. He just kind of retired from eight years as chief operating officer of Barnana. It's a, it's a better for you banana-based snack food. Did a great job. He's deciding what he's going to do next. So I told him, hey, you're teaching with me for a while at San Diego State. But he and I, from the time we became friends when he was in my class. And we don't see each other that often, but whenever we do, we'll go out and grab a couple of beers and talk about life and leadership. So we've developed this just wonderful relationship. He's just an amazing young man. I mean, he's, 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 I think he's brilliant, but he's also a really good human being and has a you know, great sense of humor. Um, and we'll get into those stories, uh, you know, and say, hey, you know, and, and, and I don't approach those kind of things as giving advice. It's, you know, just like we're in, in line with what we're talking about. We're telling stories. Hey, let me tell you something that happened to me. Right. And then, so you can take away from that what you want. Uh, but I do that. I do that a lot with my students. Um, you know, we, we, we have them take a uh, personality profile called print. And it, it tells you about what your best self is. And there's nine types, right? There's your best self and what your shadow self is. And your shadow self is your, your behavior when you're not at your best. And mine is like dead on. Uh, and 
in print, I'm a seven, which means I like, I like to have a good time. And when I was at Pillsbury, I told the students, I said, I'm going to tell you some stories about me when I was moving up in my career where I got into my shadow self and I'm lucky that, I mean, like one story where I should have been arrested, you know, for shenanigans in a hotel at three in the morning. Uh, and I didn't, and I still can't remember how I talked myself out of it, <laughs> but just what an idiot I was. But that was my shadow self, which is, you know, I like to have a laugh sometimes at the wrong moment. Right. So awareness is everything. And if you're aware of that side of yourself, if you're aware of it, you can feel it coming on. You have a chance to take control of it instead of just blunder into a dumb behavior. But that was that was part of my story, too. So, you know, it's been this long march of trying to increase my level of self-awareness over the last 40 years. So yes. I, I share a lot of that with students. Yeah. Jeff, a uh, question on that. You, you, you talk about the 80-20 earlier, I think it was. And, and, and you know, we all have an 80-20 of something, I'm sure. And we all have this alter, alter ego or a personality. How do, how do people who aren't aware, let's say, but listening to you right now, um, kind of make themselves aware? Or, 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 or what habits should they deploy or employ to make themselves aware? Well, there's a, there's a number of very simple things I think you can do. Uh, one thing that, that I would try to sell to everybody is, is just to be a reader. Uh, because I find a lot of self-reflection comes out of that, reading other people's stories. Could be fiction, could be nonfiction, could be business stuff, it doesn't matter. There's, a, there's something going on in your head, you know, the two-way conversation there, even if it's not literal. Uh, journaling, doing any kind of writing, uh, reflecting on what's going on is great. Um, you know, there's, have you guys ever read, there's an article called Solitude and Leadership by the guy that wrote the book, Excellent Sheep, William Derasevich, I think. I have my students read it all the time and I write reflection papers on it. It talks about spending time alone with yourself. You know, the philosopher Blaise Pascal said that most of man's problems come from his inability to sit quietly in a room alone with himself. <laughs> right? So maybe because I was an only child, it's, it's easier for me. But um, I think having conversations with a close friend about stuff is also super useful. It's like that old line about I don't know what I think till I hear what I say. Um, so, you know, journaling close, you know, serious conversations with people you're close to, reading, uh, reflecting, you know, that stuff is, it saves you a trip to the psychiatrist, I think. <laughs> yeah, and I guess even even in this state of solitude, you know, we talk about as we get older, that uh, value that we give it, you know, thinking like, like you talked about walking mountains and, and things like this. Is that, is that something, again, that you would, you would, uh, ask people to think about in their careers, i.e. A, a kind of balance, you know, of the, the effort and the, the strain and stress of the day, but managing that with this solitude stroke downtime. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I used to get as a break back in, in my corporate days was air, airplane flights, because there was no, <clears throat> no phone, we didn't have cell phones in those days. So that was, you know, three hours, maybe, isolated in a, in a cocoon up in the air 
you know, and I would build my little trip files so I could get to stuff that I wouldn't normally get to, right? But uh, anything that you can do to carve out some self-time for that kind of self-reflection, I think is, is fantastic. I used to run regularly and I'd use my run, my daily run, whether it was there first thing in the morning or at night after work to process a lot of stuff. A lot of it would be business stuff, <clears throat> but you know, I would also think of the other stuff. So I think you gotta find a way to do that. Uh, and one of the things I talk to my students is about, you know, cause we're, we're a very career oriented school, the School of Hospitality at San Diego State. But I tell them that you gotta think about a life, not a career. Mm-hmm. And we talk about, you know, what are the buckets of activity that you organize your life around? Uh, so for me, going back decades, I don't know when I started, I've got six buckets. I've got spiritual, personal, intellectual, physical, artistic, and professional, right? So if I was going on a run, I can't run anymore, now I walk. <laughs> but I run through the buckets. You know, how am I doing spiritually? What am I working on? What, how how are my relationships personally, intellectually, what am I working on? Physically, you know, now it's all recollection, <laughs> physical and pretty much uh, artistic, you know, professional. So you try to keep some, some long-term balance in those things. But as you go through life, you can't be balanced in the way you might like to be because you're at different stages, right? So in your 20s and 30s, you're trying to make a career and build a family and get all that stuff going. And then later in life, you can get some more balance. But I always use those six buckets to figure, let me be moving the puck down the ice in at least, you know, a little bit every day, you know, may not be much, but keep thinking about it. It's back to the self-awareness. Keep thinking about it. Keep evaluating yourself. You know, what am, how, how am I doing? Um, and if I'm, if I didn't get it done this month, you know, let's put it on the list for next month and, you know, and just keep going, keep going. Yeah. And that thing, Jeff, I think is so powerful because the the whole notion of self-awareness affects not only kind of career or business effectiveness, but it affects relationships and, and, you know, everything else. I kind of feel like people aren't necessarily um, self-aware in their business if they're not self-aware in their personal life. Yeah, I'm, I believe that. I, one of the things you guys had, had a question <clears throat> that you sent me before you know, what did I, what do I wish I knew then? Uh, <clears throat> but I, I would have to not only know it, I would have to embrace it so that I would execute. <laughs> but it's, it's the whole notion of uh, fully engaging with people at every level. You know, I've really come over the years to be a huge believer in that. But it means listening, it means opening up, being attuned to other people uh, with that servant leader kind of notion in the back of your head and good things happen when you do that um and i talked to students about networking i said it's like human relations one-on-one don't network for advancement network to build quality relationships right and things will do things for other people and you know it'll come around at some point but don't worry about it don't worry about keeping score um so that's something boy i wish i i could have figured out earlier I had I had some good role models that that I was too busy rebelling against. You know, uh, I worked for Norman Brinker, who was a legend 
in the industry. And like I said, when he promoted me to be CEO of Burger King, I, I thought it was 50-50 he was going to fire me that day. Um, <laughs> and so later on, uh, our, our, we went our separate ways. And when I was working at Pepsi and I turned 50, I was thinking about Norman. So I sent him a letter. And I said, hey, I just want you to know there's not a whole lot of good things about turning 50, but one of them is you get to reflect a little bit on your life. And I just want you to know that I wish I had taken more advantage of the opportunity to learn from you when I was working with you. And I found out later from Lane Cardwell, who was working with Norman Still at that time, he was running around the office at Breaker International showing people a letter. Hey, look at this letter I got from Jeff. And, and we wound up reconnecting. And so, you know, I would talk to him every couple of months up until he died. Um, but I was, I always said, you know, Norman produced about 40, 45 people that worked for him that became CEOs in their own right. Wow. And I was his bad boy. I was his anchor man. <laughs> but he was kind enough to let, you know, to, to spend time with me at the, at the back end, which was great. So thinking about that then, Jeff, what was it do you think about, Norman Brinker that enabled him or enabled the group around him to thrive like that? Was there any magic to it or was it just luck? It was who he was. Um, we Remember I talked about Don Smith as, as the guy that gave me that big break at Burger King. Don Smith was kind of the classic superstar CEO. Norman was the first guy, and you know, I met him in probably 1981. The first leader that led by asking questions that I'd ever been exposed to. And he'd come into a room and we're all these type A maniacs, you know, at Burger King. And he'd come in and go, who are we? And everybody'd sit there, huh? <laughs> You're not going to tell us? <laughs> who, who are we? Oh man, my brain's starting to hurt, right? So he was the first example of that other style of kind of servant leadership. And one of the biggest lessons I took away from him, I, 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 I had to apply. I didn't even realize I was doing it. When I took over as president of Burger King USA, we wanted to change our strategic direction. Franchisees were on the warpath. You know, things weren't good. And I was thinking about how I was going to get that done. And I realized that if I went into a room full of franchisees and said, okay, here's the new direction, it would have been the shortest meeting in history. <laughs> you know? I would have been thrown out of there with my pants on fire. So taking a page from Norman, who by this time had, had basically withdrawn from day-to-day -day operations there, I went on a series of tours of the, of the country and I'd have Norman type sessions with the franchisees. What are we trying to get done? How are we doing? You know, and then 20 minutes they beat me up for 20 minutes because they had a lot of frustration, right? But after about 20 minutes, you know, I'd sense they were done. I said, you guys done now? We're gonna, ready to talk about what's wrong. Yeah, 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 we're done. So, all right, and then we started doing the easel and the marker thing. What are our biggest problems? You know, and fill a wall in some hotel someplace and then say, all right, now we're gonna talk about how we start attacking these problems, if you think we got them all, and we'd get to the end and say, okay, we'll be back in 30 days and, and we'll start putting some shape onto this thing. And it, it really worked. But it was Norman as role model and the desperation to figure out how am I going to do this 
I got a thousand franchisees. How am I going to get them all owning what we do? And then I thought, God, I've been watching it. You know, I've been watching it. So that was, that was a good thing I did back then. <laughs> when I wasn't busy reading my own press clippings, I actually, that was a good one. So, but on that one, I mean, what you're talking about though, Jeff, these are really timeless leadership principles that, that worked for you back then and would work today. So if you think about that, are there two or three things that you feel like are sort of the timeless in that way that you feel like it's just a matter of, of how you lead? Now you can deliver the message like we are by Zoom or some other modern technology, so to speak, but the principles are the same. So as you look at the world up, up ahead, what would you want, you know, current aspiring leaders to know about? I, I, I have told people, and this is a, a, has become ever stronger with me over the decades since then. And I believe in full engagement. If you asked me in 1982 what the benefit of it was, I would have said great execution because they own it. But today I would say much better ideas if you start the engagement early enough because you're not smart enough. <laughs> you're not smart enough and you got all these brains that are dying to contribute. So, you know, let them in. And now you'll get ownership and execution, but you're also gonna get better ideas. Uh, and you're gonna be creating the leaders of the future because you're taking them through the essential process of leadership. So I refer to that as emergent leadership because if you do that, I believe you get leadership at all levels of the organization. It doesn't matter what somebody's title is. And then you've got a, an organization that's probably going to levitate, right? Because that, that's going on. And, you know, you've seen the Gallup stuff. Only 31% of U.S. employees are engaged in what the company's doing. It hasn't changed for 17 years. You can, you can fix it, but you've got to take a page out of that. So I think that that Brinker, who was kind of an outlier, in 1982, I'd like to think that we're on the road from top-down command and control hierarchical model to a, a model of full engagement with a servant leadership kind of approach from the key leaders within any organization. Uh, I think it's happening. I don't, I'm not convinced it's happening quickly enough because there's, you know, the usual barrier for that is fear. Um, the leader's afraid of losing control. And I saw a great line in a, in a uh, Northrop Grumman PowerPoint I found online because I was looking for stuff on this. And there was a, a, a page in their PowerPoint because they were trying to practice this. And it said, I don't know where they got the quote, uh, the opposite of control is discovery. And I thought, <laughs> wow, right on. And, yeah. and people resist that opening up because they're afraid of losing control or they're afraid that somebody above them is going to ask them a question they can't answer. Kind of the same thing, right? Um, but you have the way to on, on cork the capability and the potential of an organization is I think you gotta, you gotta take that approach. And again, Brinker was the first guy. I never seen anybody do that. And do you feel again, I was, I was, you know, a thick skulled resistant, uh, student, you know, some of it took and I had to, because out of necessity, I had to apply it. But it took me, I was 50 years old and I realized, God, you know, I wasted a bunch of time with Norman because I was too much of a blockhead, you know. 
really, it was true. And, you know, so he and I had those conversations later on, which is, you know, I'm sure he felt good about and I felt redeemed. <laughs> Jeff, how do you, and, it, you know, we both, uh, all of us, you know, support and believe in servant leadership. And like you alluded to that fear, maybe in young in Korea, you're, you're kind of aware. I guess the other aspect is from your learning and experience, how do you, how do you deliver that with international teams and cultures and the overlay there? Because that must be a challenge for some people. Ed. Oh, I'm sure because of the, you know, if for nothing else in the cultural differences, one of my master's students right now uh, works for an organization called Meeting Professionals International. And instead of doing a thesis, they do a project that's a change initiative in their organizations. And she's trying to figure out why their European division doesn't perform as well as they'd like. And she's starting by listening to people, right? Asking questions because she knows they're missing something, right? So I think it's that, that spirit of inquiry. You know, I, I, something's wrong here. I don't understand it. Um, so I've, I've got to find a way to engage and I'm, I've got to be asking a lot of questions, doing a lot of listening to start to try to get a pattern on, on what's going on. And then again, my, my, file, my next instinct would be to enroll the people I've been listening to in the solution, right? Um, on the assumption they want the same thing I do, which is we all want to be successful. We're not. So, you know, let's explore how we get from here to there. But again, you know, it took me decades to get that into my head. So, you know, Brinker, when I first saw him was, well, that can't be right. <laughs> I'm used to the killer over here, you know, who was his predecessor. And then, you know, we all got kind of trained by the killer. And now this guy comes in and it's like, hey, whoa, you know, what's this about? And we were a tough, we were a tough crew. <laughs> we, were, we were a tough crew. When, I, I mentioned Bill Spohr, who was chairman of Pillsbury. And when Norman came in, you know, we used to have these joint management meetings at some place up in Wisconsin. And Norman came in, and I guess Bill Spohr saw me as one of the ringleaders, <laughs> one of the ringleaders among the Burger King region guys, right? So he comes over to me at a, at a coffee break and he goes, no, nah, I don't want you to kill Norman. <laughs> so, so what do you mean? He goes, I know you guys. <laughs> don't kill him. Uh, That's great. But, you know, we were, we were a bunch of knuckleheads. Um, so looking at the world then, you know, the world of business today and whether it's, you know, new businesses starting, new industries emerging, whatever, what do you wish you knew now? As you, as you look ahead at how trends are changing and that sort of thing, is there anything that you kind of like, I wish I, wish I knew the answer to that? Right now, everything. <laughs> <laughs> I was just on a call with, with Paul Thiel yesterday, and you know, one of the punchlines was, nobody knows anything. You know, it's like, we're trying to look into the future. Oh my God. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, right now, I cannot, I cannot, I see possible futures, but I don't see a future. Um, you know, I'm trying to get my head around that. And then you're trying to give people some, some decent advice, you know, about 
you know, what to do with their business. Uh, it's interesting with our current chairman's roundtable uh, client, he, it's now clear to him, he's been very successful building that off premise. He's gonna change his business model going forward to be more reflective of that and the potential returns and productivity in a, in a adjusted business model. But for some other people I work with who are in the dine-in business exclusively up until now, who are battling to figure out off-premise, yeah, that's a little scarier, yeah. right? Um, we've, we've got to try to do something with the business model because I can't, this is what I don't know. I cannot predict how this is going to play out. Mm. You know, it's unprecedented. I think this situation, I'm not, I'm not encouraged by, I don't see anybody that seems to have a handle on it. So, you know, charting your way forward in some cases is easier. In, in other cases, it's, it's really tough. So what do I wish I knew? I wish I had a better handle on, on, on how the future will evolve. But boy, if it's ever been a black box, you know, I'd say that's where we are now. Mm. That's, not a very, that's not a very useful answer, but it's kind of where, I'm, where I am. So maybe one last question then, Jeff. Um, this year, and you and I have talked about this, you know, a few months ago, but this year has been so unusual. If, if there's one or two things that come out of this era, seems like it's, it's just been, you know, six months or whatever, a year, but if there's something that comes out of this, what do you hope that it is? What would you want it to be? What would be the ideal thing that would come out of this time in our lives? Okay, I, I, here's, here's one for you because I've been thinking about this. Uh, did you ever read uh, Chris Argyris? Uh, he was kind of the mentor for Peter Senge who wrote uh, The Fifth Discipline. And he used to talk about single loop learning and double loop learning. Mm -hmm. And single loop learning is when things go wrong, you just do a couple of tweaks and you keep moving ahead. It's kind of Albert Einstein had a line for it, the same thinking that got you into this trouble won't get you out. <laughs> And the double loop learning that Argyris was selling was re-examine re all your assumptions, right? Take, drop back 10 yards and look at your mental models, which are probably implicit and you haven't made them explicit. Look at your assumptions and be willing to question and change them in the light of what you're facing in your reality. And I, you know, I, I could take that for business today. I could do it for the, our country. I could do it for other countries. You know, hey, this is not working. Now, we can do our usual, stick with single loop learning, make a couple of tweaks, and continue to march, but I don't like the odds, right? Mm -hmm. But it takes courage. It's back to that loss of control, all the fears that go with double loop learning. We need to reassess the path we're on and the way we think if we're going to have a chance of uh, getting out of this. And I do think it's that big a, that big a deal. Wow. So, you know, again, at, at the age of 76, you know, I've seen, I've been watching this movie for a long time <laughs> and it ain't working, right? It's not working guys. Uh, and, you know, it, it could apply to anything. It could apply to the healthcare system. You know, healthcare systems messed up. It took a hundred plus years to evolve. And the way we're going to solve it is by throwing 300 attorneys in a room and tell them to write a solution. Mm 
<laughs> That'll work. That'll work. For them. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? Can you imagine doing that in business? So, oh my God, we got a real issue with our business model. I'm going to ask the general counsel to write me a new business model. He <laughs> 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 can talk to the law firm, you know, they'll do it. Thanks, guys. And here's a 98 page footnoted document, right? So, what are you doing? That's, you can't get there from here. That's true. Well, that's, that's great advice. That's Fabulous stuff. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for, for sharing your insight with us. This has been um, an yeah. amazing conversation. It could go on, but we want to respect your fun, thoughts. Guys. Thank you. It's been fun. It's been cathartic. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Jeff. And um, I really enjoyed it. And, um, Great. Enjoyed time spending out. time with you guys. Good yeah. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast. And thanks for listening to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr. Please join us at whatiwishinewshow.com. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please share what I wish I knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw with your friends. We welcome your feedback and recommendations of new podcast guests and ideas on topics. If you have business challenges, we're also available for advisory and consulting roles. We'd be delighted to listen and help. Just send us an email. Our address is hello at whatiwishinewshow.com. 